Welcome to the Against the Stream Nashville podcast. In keeping with the Buddha's encouragement to ensure that these teachings are freely offered to all, we do not have any set dues or fees associated with any of our classes or media. In an effort to sustain our ability to do so, we ask that you contribute via our website at againstthestreamnashville.com by clicking the Donate tab, or via the mobile app Venmo by sending a donation to the username at ATS Nashville. Enjoy. So tonight I'm going to start a series of talks and instruction on the four foundations of mindfulness, which are uh, historically how the Buddha taught instructions around mindfulness meditation, bringing awareness to mindfulness of body or sensations, mindfulness of feelings, and mindfulness of mental states and attitudes. And then mental, the fourth category is kind of these mental frameworks or patterns of thoughts. And so each week I'm gonna be giving a brief overview of these four foundations. And then I'll narrow in specifically on one theme and talk about that and we'll practice around that foundation together. And so normally what we do if you've been coming regularly is we practice meditation at the beginning for like 20, 30 minutes and then I'll offer some instruction or a Dharma talk and then we'll have some discussion together. But tonight I felt like it might be more appropriate to talk about the four foundations and talk about the first foundation of body before we do the practice. So we'll kind of mix and mingle. And that being said, if you guys have any questions or comments or thoughts or objections or whatever, we're pretty laid back. So please feel free. So the Buddha called mindfulness the direct path to realization or the direct path to our awakening. And awakening from an early Buddhist perspective is not any type of mystical event. It's not any type of like final deliverance. It's really an ordinary... uh, ability that we all have to recognize in each moment of experience our own thoughts and emotions and sensations. So awakening is this really practical, available moment that we always find ourselves in. But the problem is, and you may notice, that we don't often uh, recognize this present moment. We often fall asleep into our conceptual thoughts or our worries or plans. Right, or our memories, that we don't often recognize that we're here and we don't often have that ability to step back and to be aware of our thoughts and emotions, but often we're in them and caught up in the story that they tell. So the four foundations of mindfulness are these fields of experience that we can start to develop more intimate awareness with, starting with the body. And this is really foundation in the sense of it's the, the beginning point, and it's the place that we never really graduate from, is the breath in the body. Because we tend to be, and I'll talk about this some more, but a head on wheels, this very fast-paced, intellectually driven society that we often have a hard time accessing the more uh, sensory experience of our humanity, where emotions are, where physical sensations give us cues or clues into how we're activated. So the body is a really transformative aspect of our experience that I think culturally we have uh, divided ourselves from. 
mindfulness of feeling. Feeling is what we would call the master key to awakening because feelings are habitually uh, inclining us to either grab or drop after experience, meaning when left to our own devices, we crave pleasure and avoid pain. And so even if I'm sitting here and my butt gets uncomfortable, I may move a little bit to avoid that pain. And so the Buddha said there's nothing wrong with doing that. Comfort is not the problem. It's that when we unconsciously, reactively are always moving to manage pleasure and pain, we often create a lot more stress and suffering for ourselves. And so feeling is a really great arena for insight because we can look into how throughout the day we feel discomfort and we want to go do some destructive habit or to call the ex or you know to do whatever we do automatically um, you know and we get to bring some more investigation into those moments of experience and into feeling mindfulness of mind our mental attitudes our mental states this is a ability to look at the own mind, our own mind. They call this introspective awareness, to look into your own mind to see what your mind's current mood or attitude is. It's a very liberating practice. Oftentimes I know I'm in a bad mood, but I don't really take responsibility for it. Right? I just kind of, I'm in a bad mood, and this is just how it's going to be today, and I just feed my bad mood if I'm not too aware of it. So mindfulness of mind helps us to acknowledge our mental state, our mental attitude, and to be able to work with it more skillfully or constructively. <clears throat> and then the fourth category is what we call mindfulness of dhammas. And dhammas just means things. And so this is what I call the D answer on the multiple choice question. It's the all of the above. So this is kind of like where the Buddha said, well, be aware of body sensations and feeling impressions and mental states and attitudes, and then be aware of these extra things too. And so this is where you include a lot of uh, reflection in mindfulness. Death reflection, where we include reflection of the Four Noble Truths, we include reflection of the five aggregates, all of these lists, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. And tonight I want to talk about mindfulness of body. In particular, I think it's best to start by looking at kind of three practical benefits. And we'll do a couple practices of like what is useful about practicing mindfulness around body and sensation. And these three are deepening of relaxation, an expanded window of tolerance for physical pain, and sensory clarity or developing a sensory map for emotion. And so the first being relaxation, I think, is a good place to start because if I didn't experience some degree of ease from practicing meditation, I probably wouldn't have returned. Uh, even though mindfulness isn't solely about uh, relaxation, there's an element of encouraging a mind and body that's relaxed through mindfulness. And without somewhat of a collected mind, a relaxed body, it's hard to develop the awareness, the stability of awareness to really look at our thoughts. It's like if uh, we're, you know, engaging in destructive behaviors and someone calls you out on it, we're going to be really defensive, you know, but if we've kind of already surrendered to that behavior and we're like, all right, I'm doing that shit totally, you know, and I want to do a little bit better and I 
distance myself from the behavior a little bit, and then I can go talk to a friend. I'm going to be a lot less defensive. So if we can have a little bit of kind of relaxation through mindfulness, the awareness or the insight can become uh, more clear. So how do we develop relaxation? I want to say a couple quick things about you know, why we aren't relaxed uh, to start with. Like, what's the problem? The Buddha always taught like that. He would always kind of say, well, what's the problem first? Because if we can't identify a problem, we probably won't want to do any of these practices to begin with. So the problem is, is that you know, the mind and the body are interwoven and they are linked systems. So one Harvard psychology study said that 43% of our day we spend thinking about something usually that's not happening right now. They call this representational thinking in psychology. So that means 43, almost half of my day, I'm thinking about stuff that's not in this room right now with me. That's not the temperature of the room. It's not about you guys or what I'm saying. It's about stuff that is fantasy, future, past, or kind of conceptual ideas about who I am and how I am and how I'm doing in my life. Right? So you may notice that, yeah, definitely 50% of my day at least is spent doing that. They say it's about 50,000 thoughts. And so the problem is, is that thoughts are not due to your fault, but thoughts are full of worry, past regrets, the bored restlessness. I call this the I, I'd rather bees. I'd rather be somewhere else with someone else doing something else. That restless mind. And the neurotic self-obsession and self-evaluation. Why do we think all of these things? Well, it's just how the nervous system's wired. We're wired to think about ourselves because my brain evolutionarily has one goal, keep me alive as long as possible. So guess what? It's going to think about me, and it's also going to think about how comfortable I am. Do people like me? Do I get praise? Am I doing good in my life? Uh, you know, how can I do something fun and exciting that other people think I'm cool for? You know, the mind has this kind of obsessiveness about itself. And it's not our fault, but you know, the Buddha's really saying, well, it's our responsibility because we, when we don't have that awareness of our thoughts, these thoughts have feelings, these thoughts have emotion, and these thoughts create action. So he says thought is the forerunner of action. Whatever we think and ponder upon becomes the inclination of the mind. We're creating mental habits all the time, whether we're conscious of them or not. And so this is one of the uh, primary benefits of bringing mindful awareness to our body is that we can start to get an opportunity to drop beneath these compulsive habits of mind and into the direct sensory experience of the here and now. There's almost like this refuge to being in the body. Even if the body is uncomfortable, the body gives us the sense of something that is you know, timeless in that it's here and it's always here. It's not marked by as much the past and the future as much as our conceptual thoughts are. The body is always here. The sensations, the temperature, the contact, the weight of the body, the breath in the body, that's always available. And so even if that's difficult, the body, it's always here. And so it gives us a sense of ground or home or an anchor to drop beneath those compulsive, obsessive, neurotic thoughts and plans and memories. And by doing so, by bringing our awareness into the body, we are training a more stable awareness. 
an awareness that's not so driven by thought but focused on sensation. The body starts to send more relaxed messages up to the brain which help you into what we would call the parasympathetic nervous system. So you have kind of two parts of your uh, uh, atomic nervous system. Am I saying that right? Atomic? Autonomic. Autonomic nervous system. You have your parasympathetic and sympathetic responses. And so your sympathetic nervous system is fight, flight. You know, it's activated. It's that sense of fear or worry that you feel physically, the anxiety that we feel physically. A lot of that can come from attachment, so a lot of that can come around insecurity and relationship, you know, that kind of doom feeling or the feelings of abandonment or betrayal that we might feel or shame physically in the body. And so the body gets activated a lot. And when we practice bringing our attention into the breath, into the contact or the feeling of sitting in the here and now, into the sounds that are physically present, you actually start to send messages up to your brain from your body saying, I'm calm, it's okay, you can relax. You start to learn how to train your uh, brain through your body. And so this is the result of having what they call the vagus nerve, which is a nerve that travels from your brain stem down through your abdomen. And it connects all of your major organs as it travels down. And so, you know, it's linked or semi-responsible semi for Monitor, uh, influencing our heart rate and our breathing rate, our digestion and a lot of other organ functions. So I like to call it the superhighway, the information superhighway between our fight and flight responses and our rest and relax responses. Uh, one author, Anne Green, she wrote, essentially through meditation practice, the vagus nerve reverses the flow of information from the brain to the body. Rather than stressful orders flowing from your brain to your body, the nerve is instead taking some very strong suggestions from the body back to the brain. And nine times out of 10, the brain listens. By practicing relaxing into the body and focusing the natural flow of breathing, your vagus nerve notes that things must be calm. You have no reason to be breathing hard and fast and must therefore be able to relax. As it travels around your body and receives relaxed messages from those organs over which you do have conscious control while meditating, like your lungs and also your heart rate to a certain extent, it will infer that you are in no immediate danger and have no need, therefore, to be stressed. It will convey this message to the brain, which nine times out of ten will then ease control over the parasympathetic nervous system, allowing you to relax, rest, and digest. And so our bodies are organically intelligent systems. You know, I'm no brain science. I like to dabble in some of this stuff because I find it fascinating. But really, there's something that can be known directly through mindfulness that we have intelligent systems. You know, our bodies listen to our mind, and our mind listens to the body. And in a world that prioritizes intellect and knowing about things in this kind of conceptual realm that we're operating in all the time, it's really hard to find a way of being in our world that's more embodied. And so the way that the Buddha describes this I really like in the first part of the instructions on mindfulness of breathing, which is kind of the, our 
main connecting point into the body. He says that before you even sit and meditate, he said to put aside your desire and discontent for the world. He actually says, don't think about your stress. And for this period of meditation, he actually taught, gives this metaphor of going away from the village to a silent area, retreating into a place of seclusion. And he talks about sitting under a tree and sitting cross-legged and starting to establish mindfulness in front of us, in our breath, in our body. And so there's some aspect of like making this decision to come out here that really starts us in the process of getting us into the body. Intention is one of the most important parts of our meditation practice. Is when I'm left to my own devices, I'm going to be sitting in meditation at home and remember that I forgot to do some shit at work the other day and I'm going to get up from my meditation cushion and go take care of that thing and I'm going to sit back down and then I'm going to have a really great idea and then I'm going to go want to you know, write that down. And, you know, so having that intention to slow down, that's one of my favorite meditation instructions. It's just, what if all we did for 20 minutes is just have that intention of slowing down, of patience, relaxing, releasing tension in the body, slowing down. When the mind speeds up, you can feel it, right? You feel the energy of the mind in the body, and you can tell your body, no, not right now. It's okay. There's no, nowhere to go, nothing to do. No right or wrong way to be. And it's like talking back to the body and encouraging it to slow down. So relaxation also comes through what we call samadhi. And samadhi is a collectedness of awareness. If you think about a mind whose attention is having 50,000 thoughts, you think about a mind that's scattered. Every thought we think has some type of feeling to it. A lot of thoughts we think, in neuroscience they call this the negativity bias, a lot of thoughts we think are unpleasant thoughts, are fear-based thoughts, are worrisome thoughts about the future, or about the present, or about the coulda, shoulda, wouldas from the past. So every thought we're having is influencing how we feel throughout the day. It's affecting our mood, our attitude. And so a mind that's scattered is a mind that's emotional. A mind that scatters is a mind that is anxious and stressed. A mind that's collected is a mind that has some stability, that has some collectedness, that has some calm, some tranquility. In our lineage of practice, they call this samatha meditation. And we're practicing samatha, which is concentration or focused awareness, focused attention, and vipassana, which is an investigative or a, uh, yeah, I would just say an investigative awareness. So I'll talk a little bit more about mindfulness of breathing in the weeks to come, maybe next week. The second benefit of having a practice that has its basis in the body is that it helps us to develop an expanded window and tolerance for pain. This is one of the most transformative aspects of mindfulness. Secular mindfulness as we have it in this Western world today was really led by John Kabat-Zinn who was developing a lot of mindfulness for the use of helping people with chronic pain. So it seems so counterintuitive. Why the fuck would I want to sit with myself when I'm experiencing pain? <laughs> I would never think that that would be the benefit or that would be something that I would be interested in. 
And so, oddly enough, we can look at this two ways. We can look at this through science, this kind of quantitative data, which is somewhat interesting, or we can look at this through experience. So the science shows that clinical trials show that 57% of new meditators decrease or reduce their chronic pain levels, and 90% of experienced meditators had significant, significant decreases in chronic pain. And so they use these like you know uh, reliable tests that they measure pain by, and 57% of new meditators decrease their pain, and 90% of experienced meditators. And the reason for this is more experiential is because when you experience physical pain, you experience two types of pain. The physical pain and the mental agitation or resistance to the pain. The mind is conditioned to become agitated and resistant to pain. Again, not our fault. That's just what happens. The Buddha says, when touched with a feeling of pain, the person without mindfulness will sorrow, grieve, and lament beat his breast and become distraught over the pain. So in this way, this person will feel actually two pains, both physical and mental. Just as if they were to shoot this man with an arrow and right afterward were to shoot him with another one, so that he would feel the pains of two arrows. In the same way, when touched with a feeling of pain, the person without mindfulness will sorrow, grieve, and lament, beat his breast and become distraught, so he feels two pains, both physical and mental. Our physical discomfort throughout the day is compounded by the mental agitation that's conditioned around it. And that with mindfulness, we can learn how to be with the primary pain and ride the physical discomfort that ebbs and flows and cooperate with the agitation that's in the mind to a degree where that agitation starts to dissipate and sometimes can disappear altogether. Now, the problem is that we expect that if we've been practicing meditation that we should then feel no pain. <laughs> but it's really about meeting each moment of experience and learning that skill. We call this equanimity. Equanimity is an ability to be with your present experience without push or pull. We would call this being with. We emphasize a lot, I think, a little too much, this idea of letting go. Oh, just let go. Well, how do you let go of pain? Pain is, one of the Buddha's truths, is an inevitable thread of our human existence. Emotional pain, grief, loss, sadness, loneliness, fear, these are primal emotions. These emotions are found cross-culturally, right? So all human beings have these emotions. We're never going to get rid of emotional pain. Physical pain, definitely not, right? But it's that mental, that manufacture, that extra stress that we throw on top of it that we can learn to cooperate with. There are two reasons why our mind agitation compounds physical pain. One is that um, mental agitation kind of follows this equation, which is pain times mental agitation equals our amount of suffering during a physical episode of discomfort. So pain when we have agitation multiplying it, it increases the level of physical suffering or overall suffering, you could call it, not just physical, physical and mental. But when you can decrease the agitation, even if you can sometimes get it down to zero, right, and then something times zero equals nothing. So if there's no mental ag agitation, is there pain anymore? And I know this sounds a little bit trippy, but 
on meditation retreat, a lot of what you're working through is pain. I just got back from Burma a couple months ago and you meditate 16 hours a day there and it's super hot and you don't talk to anyone and you have nothing to do and a lot of the practice is just working with physical pain. You sit for an hour, the pain comes up about 40 minutes in, 45 minutes in, you know what's coming and so you anticipate it, agitation, right? Then the physical pain comes and you're like, oh, I knew it, now I have to sit with the agitation. <laughs> and then you try to be with the mental agitation, you really bring mindfulness to the mental agitation, you say, oh, it's okay, it's okay, mind, I know you're really freaking out right now, it's fine, just find the breath, feel the pain. Do you notice that the pain's coming and going, ebbing and flowing, all right, I can feel that, that's cool. And then it's like, but it's still here, and I have like 15 minutes, and I, you know, and then the mental agitation comes back, and then you meet the mental agitation. But really, over time, you can learn how to use mindfulness as a skill to uh, penetrate that agitation in our mind, to cooperate with the agitation in the mind until it can temporarily dissolve. So mental agitation is a multiplier to physical pain when it's present. The second thing that is the cause of this mental agitation is that it's, uh, or this type of suffering, this second arrow we call it of suffering, is that the mental agitation, when we experience it around physical pain, it's a lot longer lasting than the physical pain itself. So if you have... I don't know if we'll be able to see this, but kind of an ebb and flow of sensation. The mental agitation peaks and carries. They call this uh, agonizing emotional state. So your mind agonizes over the primary pain, and the agony takes a lot longer to dissipate than the pain itself. So when you can be with this first arrow, quite literally, you get to experience what we call cessation, the ceasing or the fading away of the physical pain. But when we're stuck in the mental agitation, we have to experience that peak agitation until it usually takes a little bit longer but starts to slope down. But then you get hit with another peak and it hits again. <clears throat> and so we spend our whole life, if you really look at this simple kind of analogy of experiencing discomfort and without mindfulness, having this kind of dramatic inner agitation to it, and that lasts, and then when it happens again, it continues, and then when it happens again, it continues. But if we can learn how to be with those ebbs and flows of our life, the gain and the loss, the praise and the blame, they call these the worldly winds of life, the beauty and tragedy of our daily life, the pain and the pleasure of our daily life. We don't have to create this second suffering. So the last thing I wanted to talk about was sensory clarity, how through mindfulness of body, a little bit about what John was talking about, we can start to kind of become aware of how the body is impacted by our thoughts. Because we are unique in the way that 
a lot of our inner psychology, meaning the way that we make sense out of the world, has been conditioned through our formative experiences, our early childhood attachment relationships, through adverse childhood experiences, through our resilience as we move through life. So a lot of the ways that we experience our world is unique. The Buddha says, in this fathom-long body, through our thoughts and perceptions, lies the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the path that leads to the cessation of the world. So what this means to me is that in our unique bodies, our thoughts and perceptions create and construct our world. And so we also have ways that thoughts and sensations uh, are unique. You know, things that trigger or activate emotions. Uh, when we feel or we sense that a friend is upset with us, right? When we feel or sense that a boss uh, is wanting more from us, right? When we feel or sense someone is preoccupied with us or vying for or wanting for intimacy with us. We may have different activated responses to these things. So one of the beautiful things about mindfulness is the more moments of awareness that I connect with throughout the day, the more I start to develop what I call the subway map, right? This kind of internal sense of how my unique thoughts and perceptions are colored through my interactions, the stimulus in the world, and how my body relates and interrelates with those thoughts. And so I call this sensory clarity, and especially I like to look at how we can develop a sensory map for emotion. Uh, the definition of emotion that I like that's the most simple is that emotions are felt sensations that arise as a result of perceived threats or opportunities in the environment. Right, so they're physical sensations that arise as a result of perceived threat or opportunity. The thing about perception is that perception is based on memory. So you don't even have to have a conscious perception of a perceived threat or opportunity. It could be just felt or known, especially through like implicit memory, meaning because you've experienced something similar to it before. Right? Like sometimes we have deja vu, right? Or we have those experiences where it's like, I've been here, it feels like we've been there before, right? But we also have had uh, moments of experience that have felt very familiar, but we don't really have the perceived information in front of us of like what or why that is. And that's where a lot of like trauma comes from, traumatic stress is from these implicit memories that get embedded into our body and mind. So a simple way of putting this is that, you know, emotions are felt, but they're also arising from perceived threats and opportunities. The problem with emotions is that they can be quick and inaccurate, right? That sometimes what I think is a threat may actually be an opportunity. <laughs> For example, if I want to date someone, that's an opportunity, right? Why does it feel, not feel like that a lot of the time? Right, because there's a lot of vulnerability, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of insecurity, there's a lot of just humanness that comes up in that arena. You know, sometimes opportunities, things that I think are exciting or will be great are actually threatening, right? And we get rushes off of our sympathetic nervous system. The fight and flight response in small doses, we enjoy it. But when we remain in that reaction too long, it burns us out. So. You know, this is why we like amusement parks. It's why we like drugs and alcohol and things like this is because they uh, deliver that rush 
you know, and that emotion of excitement is actually lives in the same house as the emotion of anxiety. So sometimes we get excited off of our anxiety or we get excited off of that kind of fight flight, that intensity. In some rooms of uh, recovery, they talk about being addicted to intensity, right, which I relate to. <laughs> so sometimes perceived opportunities may actually be threats. The things that I, I'm excited about may not actually be good for me. So emotions can be quick and inaccurate. Uh, emotions create emotion-based stories. So this is what we call mental proliferation, which is the tendency when we experience a threat to already have a story for it. Um, and I give this example a lot. I like to I do it because I think it's familiar to a lot of us. But it's like this hypothetical situation of driving down Gallatin Road and you see a car. And in that moment of experience, you make contact with the car, you see the car, and you think of your ex because your ex drove the same make and model of car, right? So you think of your ex, and now you're thinking about your breakup with your ex, and then you start to feel the anger and the resentment and the jealousy, and then you start to replay what your ex said to you, and then you start to feel, why am I still thinking about my ex? I'm such a loser. It's been like a year since I broke up with my ex, and now I'm feeling shame and loneliness, and now I'm thinking about, oh, I told myself I wasn't going to date, but there's no one out there to date. Now I'm feeling hopeless, right? So the emotion grabs hold of a story, and the story acts out the emotion. So I like to say that like emotions are like software programs. When you experience them, they do the thing that they're designed to do. And if you feed the story, that can be fine if you want to act the emotion out. right? But if you feed the story, it's going to intensify the emotion. And it creates a mood that stays or lingers. Just like we talked about with the physical pain, with the peaks and the valleys, the mental. So you may have an activating event that triggers an emotion. You can't help that. But we feed it or we create this mental story, mental proliferation that carries it. So the, another problem with emotions is, like I said, they influence our mood and they stick around. So when a mood sticks around, you get in that kind of mental state. I am the one who's lonely. I am the one who's hopeless. I am the one. So that emotion, that initial emotion affects you. You identify with it. And then you're seeing through that lens. So then you're going through the rest of your day and you're looking through the loneliness story. And then someone's, you know, like acts weird towards you and stops making eye contact with you or they didn't really like the presentation you did at work, they didn't give you praise, and you're seeing through the loneliness story so it just keeps activating that emotion all day. And so mindfulness really helps because it can start to help us to look at these emotions and these mental states not as things that we have to identify with but processes that we can come to understand. We can come to recognize, oh, this is fear. And this is fear. And when I'm afraid, I'm going to have a lot of fearful stories. And I notice those fearful stories. I'm aware of those fearful stories. Can I solve them? And we can start to look at what's skillful. And this is what the Buddha called wise effort. Is the fear constructive? Is it helping me to do anything? Most of the time, not. You know, fear really helps you if you're in a situation where there's a threat that's imminent that you can try to problem solve and work through. 
But there's all these unexpected unknowns of the future that we're constantly in fear or worry about that we can't do anything about that we're constantly worrying and worrying and worrying more and just feeding the fear. So mindfulness helps us to kind of come back to the body, to feel the sensation of fear in the body, to get to know it. I love looking at emotions as like friends that are going to constantly visit us. They're not necessarily good friends. They're kind of like annoying friends that you have to deal with. (laughs) But they're here to stay. We're never going to ever get rid of fear, ever. So why not, instead of try to banish it, get to know it? And say, all right, fear, this is what fear feels like. It's this place in the body. It has this rumbling feeling in the stomach. (sighs) Get out of the story and just into the sensation for a minute. So emotions influence our mood and they stick around and they get re-triggered. And the last thing, emotions, the problem with emotions is they create actions that we often regret. When unaware of an emotion, an emotion is quick. And when your emotion brain reaches a certain threshold, you override your ability to think rationally and problem solve. And the emotion takes control and you act on the emotion. And then you experience these secondary emotions of regret that come in to remind you, oh shit, you were emotional and you did something that you don't value (laughs) and now I've got to go apologize and now I've got to be vulnerable and go do that and I don't want to do that and you know, so emotions are quick, they're hot and they often call call us to action emotion comes from the Latin root emovere which means to move out so they're always going to have that moving quality to them a new study from uh, Aalto University in Finland isolated a broad spectrum of emotions and created colorful body maps that correspond to 14 different emotions. The researchers found that the most common emotions trigger strong bodily sensations and the bodily maps of these sensations were cross-cultural. The engagement and disengagement patterns of the emotional body maps were consistent across different Western European and East Asian cultures. This suggests that emotions and their corresponding bodily sensation patterns have a universal biological topography. So this validates that emotions are not going to go anywhere. The people in East Asia have them, the people in Finland have them, the people in the US. We have the same, not only uh, emotion, meaning the mental pull, but we also have the same physical map of emotions in our body. Through mindfulness, we can learn to understand how our individual body feels in correlation to a wide range of emotions that are triggered by a wide range of different activating events. Meaning, I know that through mindfulness, certain things activate me more than others. Certain situations, I have certain trigger points. They feel certain ways in my body. By bringing awareness to the physical sensations that underlie our emotions, We can better stay in touch with our broad emotional changes throughout the day, which improves emotional intelligence. So that means we can learn how to track emotion sensations. And in emotional intelligence, they talk about these four stages of being able to process through emotions. The first is to identify, which means to just know a physical sensation is present. This is an easy most easily overlooked step of emotional intelligence is just to know that I'm emotional, 
right? I rarely do that. <laughs> I don't know why, but the emotion so compelling. I feel so unique. It feels so important that it's almost like I can't even just notice, oh shit, I'm really afraid, or I'm really sad, or I'm really lonely, or whatever it may be, or I'm really excited. So to know the physical sensation is present means to identify it, and then to access the emotion, meaning to feel with. This is what I like to call getting in the pool with the emotion. Like when you get in a pool and it's a little cold and you don't really want to get in. Sometimes you want to jump in and you have that kind of warrior mentality like I'm just going to sit with my anger and rage, right? Which is not probably a good idea. <laughs> in, uh, uh, in psychotherapy, they talk a lot about titrating emotion. So to, to back off and bear down. So to sit with it, to sit with it, to sit with it. If it gets really elevated, to find something constructive or skillful or helpful that you can do to distract from it. So something that's like you're not going to regret later. Distract, go on a walk, talk to a friend. They found that venting is not a healthy way to downregulate emotion. Think about it. When you're venting, what are you doing? You're, tr you're, you're getting it out, but you're actually keeping your arousal state up. And especially if you get a friend that's going to validate you venting. <laughs> Dude, that person is totally an asshole. I know exactly what you're talking about. They do that to me, too. And then you got two ragers on the phone, right? <laughs> and so it's hard to, when venting, to kind of downregulate. So identifying, accessing the emotion, having that wisdom to know, can I be with this emotion and can I find constructive, healthy ways to distract, and being able to go back and forth. I, I like to say, <clears throat> generally, because we're always going to, I should say for me, I'm always going to not want to feel discomfort. My area to lean into is always to sit with a little bit more than to distract. Uh, but we have to find our own way with it. It's like sometimes we need to find healthy ways to distract. But because we're just neurobiologically not going to want to sit with fear and loneliness and sadness, doing that a little bit more <laughs> uh, might be a good kind of edge that we can play to. Identify access. After we know the physical sensations present or the emotions present, we can feel with the physical sensation of the emotion that's present. Then we can start to have clarity around, the, around how the sensation may have arisen. Or we can start to understand what the physical sensation feels like it needs. Emotions are all trying to get opportunities or avoid threats. So the emotion may not be... Uh, you know, accurate in the sense of like the emotion may not mirror the actual threat, but we can know that when I'm afraid, I need safety. So how do I give my body and mind some general sense of safety? Now, my mind thinks if I figure out the unknown worry that I'm obsessing about, I'll be safe. But if I can do something else that's safe, that's simple, the fear will downregulate from my mind, right? And I'll be able to move through it. And we know that when we're less emotional or emotionally activated, not meaning when we are free of emotion, but when we are less emotionally activated, we have more clarity and we have more creativity and we have more wisdom. So identify, access, understand, and then we can manage. Uh, then we can actually take the action to help us with the emotion, to help us through it.